You're listening to The Process with Peter Barton, presented by Open Studio. Today's episode of The Process was recorded live on stage at Jazz at the Bistro in St. Louis, USA. Welcome, Bad Plus. you guys so much for being here thank all of you for being here um, um i'm really excited to delve into uh as much as we can and i'd like to start with um the origins of the bad plus and you know the genesis of this fabulous group that um if you're not familiar with them um you're about to get familiar with them and get familiar with their music as well most importantly but um these guys really have such a an innovative and interesting take on so many different intersections of jazz music and trio playing, um, acoustic music, classical music, grooves, um, all that kind of stuff. So um, I'd love to just sort of hear how you guys first got together. I know you're all upper Midwestern boys that are down here in St. Louis, St. Louis basking in our 12 degree warmth. You know, thank you very much. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, so how did you guys all meet and, um, how did the bad plus become the bad plus? This isn't really cold. You know that, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> we are, we, well, we're originally, you know, we're all, Reed and I are from the Minneapolis area originally. And so, um, uh, we met in, we're, quite young we're 14 or 15 years old just being musicians in school and 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 we kind of hit it off then playing together in just regular just garage band things but also we had interest in jazz in jazz music and 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 kind of growing into that together and by garage band just for the kids out there you mean playing music in a garage yes actually not on a computer not the app right? okay. or whatever that thing <laughs> it could is. be a basement yeah okay. it was a, more of a basement <laughs> well sometimes we were relegated to the garage at my house because my mother had a very big temper about the sound of the drums anyway uh and so we uh played together a lot through through those years and uh Ethan and Reed met in uh Ethan was uh He's a few years younger, and he grew up in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is about an hour outside of Minneapolis, a smaller town, and, and Reed met him when Reed was attending Eau Claire. I'll just do it really quick, uh, college in Eau Claire for one year, and uh, in the jazz program or whatever, and he was like this young pianist. Well, he called me and said, it was a summer after his first year, and he was heading out to Philadelphia to go to the Curtis Institute of Music. And he said, I met this young pianist, you got to hear him. I mean, we, we'd always stayed in touch and played together. And I was about to move to Los Angeles, and I, so I was getting ready, and he, he brought this young pianist over. He was like four, five, <laughs> how, how young? Yeah. Well, Ethan, what, you're 16? He's three years younger than us. We were about 19 at the time, and 16 or 17. And, and we played uh, a session, 
And um, that was in 1990. And we already had a sort of, each of us had a sort of attitude about, you know, being, you know, maybe forcing some different thing. You know, we, we didn't really know what it was, but we were trying. All of us kind of trying to be what we sort of, you know, like iconoclastic, like, you know, hey, I, this is how I do it. And, this is how I, and so then over the next 10 years, we just sort of played in, you know, they moved to New York. I was in Los Angeles. Reed came out there and made a record with me. We just kept in contact. I played some shows with Ethan. They played a lot together and made a few records together in New York. And in 2000, 10 years later, I had been playing New York a lot with my other things, and they were like, man, we should maybe just get together again and play trio, since we were friends, and those two had been playing a lot together at then. And we had a, another, we booked just, just some shows, and it, and, it, and it really felt like that energy had matured on some level, <laughs> and we felt there was something special about the way we were playing together, and we decided, you know, this is something we should care for and, and try and make happen. And that's how we, that from then on to 2000, the story just goes. We just keep, you know, kept, kept hitting it. Yeah, man. great so i mean so when you were at that point um like thinking of the sound of you know the the those records in the early 2000s and kind of the original sound there's how do you guys feel about i mean we're jumping ahead now but you know compared to what you're doing now what the sound of the trio i mean all the different um you know types of music that you've gone through but i mean to me it's like i hear i mean that was pretty early on to really be able to hear that bad plus sound already there, you know, is that the way it sounds to you now? Or, or, or when you hear those, those early recordings, is it like, that was another group? I think we all feel like, yeah, in a sense, our sound has always been there. Um, you know, there's often this emphasis or, you know, in interviews is like, tell us how your sound has evolved over the right. years. And, and of I'll, course that does that was my next question. Okay. Hold yeah. Okay, I'm going to mark, <laughs> um, mark that one off. So <laughs> just trying to head that one off at the past. Peter. Um, and of course there is an evolution left over 16 years or 16 plus years. Um, but, but the core or the essence of what we've done, we, I think was there from, from the get go. And, and, um, and I think that's, you know, we haven't really, I, th I think when you're starting to think about, oh, well, we have to evolve or we have to do this, you're kind of imposing uh, something unnatural a lot of the time. And, and for us, we've, we've really said, okay, look, how do we go deeper into, into what comes naturally to us? Mm -hmm. Right. So and then how do you guys feel about, you know, kind of your place within the, like the jazz continuum because you're a jazz trio. Like you guys can play in so many different ways and and really obviously own your sound you know as a trio and as an ensemble and then you also have you know that's that's quite a feat in it, in itself 
um, you know, to nurture that and, and to believe in that and to go with that. But to be able to do that in, you know, piano, bass, and drums, you're talking about Oscar Peterson trio, the Ma Jamal. Um, and to me, it's like you guys, you know, you fit right in that and you're bringing your sound and then you're extending upon something that's, uh, to me, has always felt like a magical kind of easy, like putting on a nice sweatshirt or whatever, because it, it just fits together, you know. But do you, is that something like that you guys even think, think about and, and talk about or does it just sort of happen? Well, you know, um, Dave had a group called, still does, sorry, <laughs> has a group, Happy Apple, which was a, a band with Eric Fratsky and Mike Lewis. And he was the one who suggested to me, I, I guess, to read to, to, to like, okay, let's have a band. Because I made some records with Reed as Ethan Iverson, and Reed made some records as Reed Anderson. And then Dave was like, oh, no, let's, let's just have a band and call it The Bad Plus. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And the thing that's good about it is, okay, you're a great piano player. I know something about jazz piano, too. You say Oscar Peterson trio, but wait a minute, who's playing with Oscar Peterson? Now, the thing is, is we both listen to a lot of Oscar Peterson records, and I bet we could sit around the bar and talk about which records with the right bassists and the right drummers are really the right ones. Mm-hmm. But still, at the end of the day, most of your average jazz fans aren't going to know or care. They're just, oh, yeah, the Oscar Peterson trio, that's the sound that we like. You know, Oscar was great. One of the all-time greatest jazz pianists. The Bad Plus has subverted that entirely because you know it's the three of us making this music. So in some real kind of way, we aren't the piano, jazz piano tradition. Mm-hmm. But of the, of the guys that you would talk about as the jazz piano tr- trio tradition, I think the the reference that is most helpful in my mind is Ahmad Jamal because he was so much about mood, character, and song and not about a bunch of jazz blowing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that most of us, when we talk about Ahmad Jamal, we would first talk about the trio with Israel Crosby and Vernal Fournier, and they really had a specific thing that only those three guys brought to the table. And um, I guess I do see us as a, some sort of, you know, postmodern version of that trio in, in some kind of way. Yeah. I, I hear that, and I, I wonder, too, if it isn't even more, you know, an expectation to the listener, to the audience, when you call yourself the bad plus, or if you call yourself anything besides the Ethan Iverson trio or the, the pianist trio, all these trios, you know, almost always are named after the pianist. So, the, you know, as musicians and as you get into the music, the reality of the Ahmad Jamal trio, we understand what Vernell brings and like the interplay and like how much of a, a real, and, and it's only three people and three musicians and how much of an ensemble it is. But to the audience that does you're making a statement when you say we are the bad plus because all of a sudden they're coming to the show before you even play a note and looking at all you, you know, like, okay, who's going to announce the tune? Who's going right, to, right. who's getting paid more? What, what's going on? You know? <laughs> and, um, I, I think it's a cool thing because <laughs> these are very real concerns, well, by the way. He's Peter, saying, Peter, 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 this Peter, is go, not, go easy. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, that, that family. Over right. here, so <laughs> I got to cross okay, that one off to be paid more. Okay. <laughs> um, but it does affect, you know, the audience and, 
you know, in a way, and, and even, you know, talk about Oscar Peterson trio and stuff. I mean, I mean, how can you not think about Ray Brown being such, right, I mean, right. Oscar Peterson was fine when he wasn't there, but when that trio was there, but I think you guys have really, you know, been able to, you know, capture that. I mean, cause to me, I mean, I was sitting here listening to you guys last night and, um, you know, all, you know, the somewhat obvious things like interplay and listening, of course, all that's their groove and vibe and stuff. But I mean, the, you know, combinations of the textures of these three instruments and what that can do. And, you know, you guys have really tapped into that, I think, beyond even just, you know, each other and you can play with each other, but like really taking the instrument of the piano trio or the trio. Sorry, guys. <laughs> the piano trio, you know. Yeah, I. You know, when you're talking about bands, or we're, we're, we're talking about the idea of bands and what Ethan was saying about, you know, when you know that it's us, we actually have always really believed that that's very good for the music you, because it creates a certain fan base of something. You know, you, you can become a fan of something at that point. You know, if I, if I have a ticket to see Radiohead, you know, I want to see Radiohead. I don't want to see the singer of Radiohead with four other people. And it's, in a way, it's... It's it lets you kind of hear the identity of the music and put put a name to it. And, you know, you can have a the records and a shirt and something like that. And I think that jazz shouldn't think of itself as, you know, you know, like some random thing that's jam session based only, you know, where you've got virtuosos that come together and they play a common language. Well, for us, the. To, to create a sound together and to have a body of work and all of these things, we feel that it's very healthy to make create new fans for this music. And that's one thing that we've really... has been a subtext to our career, is that we, we have always loved this music and, and we've always loved personal music and improvised music and all streams of jazz the three of us come from and love. So it's... It, to us, it's like it's a very vital component to show up at a festival or show up at a show, a club, and have this sound intact and and have this identity. You know, be able to take those risks that you can take when you're a working band. Be able to have a body of work that you can call upon every night. Different things, keep it. Try to keep it fresh, and all the elements that are in there. The trust that goes into it. The fact that three people really own the music together. The statement is is one of very equal. Statement. So when you have three, you, you, you know, personalities pumping that out there, I think it's palpable. It has been for me when I've seen the great working groups, you know, even if there is a name like the Keith Jarrett Trio or whatever. The fact is that's Jack DeJanet and Gary Peacock, and that's a sound. And you know, when you buy that record, there, there's that ride cymbal sound, or there's that whatever. And um, we take it that much further by having the band name and the, and the fact that everyone writes separately and there's everyone contributes compositions equally and all these other things so i just wanted to jump in and say that's a huge reason why we you know have stuck with this and and really believe in it is because we think that it's healthy for the music and not only healthy for the piano trio classic piano trio to have evolved into something else because if i can say with all humility i don't know what i could say that we've contributed in 17 years of being together but that's one of the longest-running jazz groups in history without a lineup change. Damn, but also, up my next question. Yeah, yeah. But also, as a piano trio, I, I, the only thing I can actually say, if some, because we've been asked this before, and I've, I've always been like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Like, oh, I'm just a conduit, and I don't know. You know what we did? We did volley something different for the piano trio, classic piano trio. Right. Whereas we always call it a piano-based drums trio, or wherever you like. Right, you said right. the trio, <laughs> but like. 
really, if you look at it on the surface, it's, the, it's a piano trio in jazz, you know, it must be this thing. We really challenged and still challenge, I think, the dynamic scope of piano trios, the way the instruments blend, the way we use noise elements and, and um, density and also minimalism and all these other things that, you know, we feel... Ethan makes a great point, the Ahmad Jamal trio, but taking that further into a, a realm where we, we took a lot of criticism, not only for our dynamic scope, but also our choice of you know, music from the original uh, to, to what we consider standards of our time and all these things, and sort of how, have outlasted that, those outcries. And you know, ultimately, that's what you know, how we not only challenge the leader-centric idea of the piano trio, but we challenge the idea of what the piano trio is in jazz history and also groups and challenge people to put together bands, stick with your sound, because it creates fans of the music ultimately. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that that, that really, you know, captures the essence of what you guys do musically as well, and it matches that, which is always a great thing. Um, I mean, the, you know, the piano trio is... There's no vocalist. There's no horns. It invites in the audience, especially, I mean, you guys do a lot of the, the you know, you've played all the great jazz clubs all over the world many times, probably more than anyone over the last 17 years, I would say. Um, but in those kind of environments, in an intimate hall, it invites people into, you know, the drums and the, the acoustic bass and the piano in a way that it just can't be done when there's we don't like to say extra instruments, but, you know, I mean, that's great, too. But, you know, the, the horn players are up there, then they move over, and then there's a drum solo, then everyone's kind of in there. You guys, there's, there's a lot of dialogue and inviting in, even during the piano solo, which I'm usually kind of against, but you, may, you know what I mean? It's like you make that work, and it, 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 it's a, it's, maybe that's the plus part of the bad plus. That's the little, that you're bad, but you got the plus, you know. So, maybe so, so now you're talking about your audience, so this is something I really... Uh, wanted to get into and if, if you guys are up for kind of talking about it because I'd love you, you do have a little bit different audience than your typical jazz audience um, you definitely have the hardcore you know jazz heads that are like coming to if somebody talks shh to playing you know that want to hear every note they want it to be different but you guys have tapped into a younger um, and, and not just in terms of age but in terms of attitude and and kind of a a vibe that wants to follow a group specifically and wants to be challenged, um, but wants to be a part of kind of something maybe a little bit more than just I'm at the club here in the band, kind of part of a movement, kind of a thing. We're with the Bad Plus. But is that something you guys set out to do or did you see it happening? And, and how do you really see your audience? I'd say it is something we set out to do. Um, you know, one of the things that we think is important is to play music and to play music with an energy that can connect to an audience. Um, I think we're all somewhat familiar with, uh, you know, what can be uh, the attitude in jazz, which is, which ranges from like, well, no one's going to get this anyway to like, um, you know, <laughs> no, they're not good enough for what Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, they just don't understand what we're doing or, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But we've, um, we've really thought about like you know how do we play this music challenge our audience but yet make them feel invited and and have them feel the energy of like hey we like this and and we believe that you're going to like it too um so i i think that 
you know, it, a lot of it connects with, with what Dave was just saying of like having a music that can have fans and that, that people can say, oh, yeah, well, I like the bad plus. It's not like I just, I like some jazz, which I think is often the case and that, that has been kind of the problem in a way with like the jazz, because that's talked about almost more than anything when you talk about jazz. It's like, well, where's the audience? We've got to get younger people into this and... You know, I, th I think that, you know, audiences just, <clears throat> they want to hear something that's played with with passion and commitment. And also, frankly, like, the band gets on stage and knows what they're doing, you know? Like, when we get on stage, we're playing music that we've been playing for all these years. We're not reading charts. We're not, we're not um, you know, no one's up there worried that they're not going to, like, know what's going on in the tune. We all have a, a very strong concept of that and I think that that was another thing that we were really um, focused on early on it's like we're going to go up there we're not going to have charts and you know 10 page charts in front of us and we're, we're going to know our music and we're going to we're going to commit and that's that's a very powerful energy it doesn't you know the content of course on top of that can take it to another level but just starting from there I think is really important and the audience feels that they feel respected when you do that. This episode of The Process is brought to you by Jazz St. Louis. For a full concert calendar or to check out some of Jazz St. Louis's education programs, go to jazzstl.org. Much, I mean, how much interaction do you guys have and have you had over the years or you, you know, actively having with your audiences? I mean, I know you've, you know, the blog is, has been a big part or was a big part and continues to be, um, do the math, you know, for you guys. And, and you guys were really early on, you know, kind of online and, and talking music and, and many other things, but kind of connecting with people in a way that's done a lot more now, but, but in jazz was really not being done at all. Um, but how was that connection? And has that shaped kind of what you guys have done at all, or has it been more just sort of, you know, letting folks know what you're doing? Um, the blog is actually Ethan's only. So, I mean, maybe Ethan wants to talk about that. We've actually not had a very large social media presence ever in this band. Um, I know none of us really know how to do that, uh, but Ethan is definitely... That's, I just wanted to But you have computers, that. right? We you have do. a computer. Okay, good. <laughs> Reed has a mainframe that we actually... Nice. We have a... Because we travel in a huge Winnebago. It's out there. In fact, we need to feed the meter in a few minutes. But um, we bring the mainframe with us. And nice. But it stays really warm in the winter, yeah, so it's yeah. nice. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, can you speak to that? Yeah, a little bit? well, yeah, do the math. It's about 11 years old. And it did start as a band blog, but... Uh, but we never contributed. <laughs> well, Ethan asked me. Ethan asked me to talk about um, Phil Collins once, and he and he reviewed one of my records. That's how I, I have a presence. You don't have a presence. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, <laughs> anyway, it turned out <laughs> that uh, I started writing about the music, and it went really easily for me. And then I just was like, I couldn't stop myself. I just started writing millions, literally millions of words about jazz on the internet. So take that positively or negatively, however you want, but that's, that's what happened. Right. But I mean, but it, it has not really been a promotional tool for the bad plus. I, I advertise our gigs once in a while, you know, a new record comes out. I say, okay, new bad plus record is out. But actually I think the first, 
for me, the golden rule of social media is everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to talk about myself. But I, that is, there's something off-putting about that if it's only that. I think, I think the hip thing to do and what I like doing and what I like reading in other people's social media activity is, you know, personal study. I'm, I like this. This is why I like it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, 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 that's what everybody wants to happen about themselves. But it's very hard to start it for yourself. It's very hard to wake up one morning and be like, okay, here I am. I'm great. I'm on the Internet and I'm great. You know, but it's, if you start saying like, well, you know, John Coltrane is great. You actually have a place to begin uh, building some connections with with other people that also love John Coltrane, you know, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's always it's always uh, seen to me because I've been following your writings for a long time. Like it's there's a big you know curation element to it, and but it, it but I don't think you ever actually said you know I am expert, I have this degree, or whatever. It was more like observations. But then you are viewed after you do that enough as someone that is an expert on something when you write the right thing enough i think and and almost to the point of where like you're viewed as a journalist now you know well i i regret to say jazz criticism is not a well-loved discipline among jazz musicians so <laughs> I, regret, I regret to say so, uh, the, so you regret to discover or to well, say <laughs> the thing is there's actually a giant hole where not just me i mean maybe i'm a the most notable uh word word count but I would say that a lot of musicians have been able to chime in on social media about what actually how the musicians feel about jazz, and I think this has actually been really difficult for your classic jazz journalist who is not a musician and and frankly never really understood it from that perspective. So, you know, I, I and I think it's I think it was time really for musicians to sort of take over some of this real estate and be like, oh, this, guess what. This is a bit more how we think about it when we're t- sitting around talking about our favorite records at the bar after our gig. You know what I mean? Right. And Rather the- than just these czars who are like, well, this is why Duke Ellington is great. You know, it's like, you're totally wrong. You've been wrong for 100 years. Right. Can we set the record straight <laughs> once, you know? Right, right. But, I mean, I think that you went about it in a very skillful way to to build up that kind of, credibility with beyond just the musicians you know but with the, the general public and, and i'm sure with your fans and stuff too that are interested in beyond just let me go have a drink and hear these guys jam on some tunes you know i'm not sure i i, I honestly i think as you probably know too peter you, you do what you do but how you're really perceived is hard to know and i would say that's for both the bad plus and my little blogging activities i think that's that's the way I feel about it, actually. Mm-hmm. Is I, I feel like it's hard to know how it's really perceived amongst musicians, felt, or critics, the audience, or whatever. You know, everyone's in their own movie making their internal decisions, but it's it's hard to know. Right, right, right. Well, I think I mean, you know, one of the times when I really, you know, was excited about reading, and I'm, I'm just connecting now with what you said when you talking about kind of how you started blogging the interview with Keith Jarrett. I think you started out even like, I don't know if you edited, but you jumped right into like some very musical questions 
And the, what, what I believe you, I have to go back and look, and maybe I'm screwing this up, but I think you skipped over the whole part about, oh, Keith, I love you so much. You changed my life when I was seven, and I heard your recording, and I learned so much from you. And I don't think there was any of that actually in there. Well, I'll tell you, of, of the people I've met, Keith Jarrett has the most confidence that he's changed your life. Right. Meeting, <laughs> so you didn't meeting any him? stranger <laughs> in the world, Keith is confident he's changed their life. So... I felt I didn't need to do that one, really. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, but, you know, what's nice about what Ethan is doing, though, it, that perspective is really cool because, you know, I, you know, I think that I have less, like, oh, jazz critics need to get it right. You know, I mean, because enthusiasts, I mean, people are reporting, so they don't necessarily have to be like they need to know all of the nuts and bolts. But there is there's a real place for enthusiasm and creating an enthusiasm with people not needing to know these things and more of the reporter perspective of like, hey, you know, this is something that you can. But to to he's absolutely you know makes makes a great point to to kind of have another voice in there and sharing the real estate a little bit. If you want to go further, I don't care what it is, jazz or wine or literature right. or anything. It's like to have. You know, it'd be, you know, to have a voice that's not only in there, but in the scene, gigging, touring at the same time. This isn't some far flung, you know, little nest that he's writing from or whatever. He's actually on the road and doing all these things. To have that perspective, I think, is really valuable to create, you know, uh, know, a deeper understanding. Uh, uh, If you want to go deeper, some of that information is there, not uh, not necessary and not uh, like, oh, you need to have this in order to enjoy this and not at all. Hence the kind of like I like to to read the enthusiastic review or or even a takedown of something that just feels like it's an emotional response to something. Someone's, you know, someone's criticizing something because, hey, you know, they have their they have their agenda. And it's like, okay, but they're out there. They're enthusiastic. They're, they're, they're covering this music for a reason. It's like, what do you get for a downbeat review? $20. You know, I mean. You get to pay them. Yeah, you get to pay them. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, there's people out there that, have, that are in the discourse and they're in there. So, in a way, it's all good for the music to have people caring enough to write anything or be at shows or to do anything. But it is true, like, there's, like, a great, that what Ethan has provided, probably singularly, I don't know a lot about the, the blogospheres of the world, but I do know it gets in there pretty deep, and I've read a few of the, uh, them and gone, like, wow, he's really, <laughs> he's dealing in there. He's just, to me, he's the, the guy with glasses playing the piano in the Bad Plus for 20 years, but everybody else is just like, oh, my God, he's... Have you read that thing that Ethan wrote about? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I haven't checked that one out yet. I'm, no, people talk five about years it. ago was a lot. I mean, I'm like trying to keep up with it sometimes, you know. Well, I mean, and there really is a there's a line that you cross um, from, you know, hey, let's share with the fans. We're on the road having a hamburger together and stuff, and everybody does that, and that, and people are interested in fans or whatever up to a point. But there's definitely a line that that musicians. Some musicians cross where it's like, hey, this is me. This is what I actually think about my music. Okay, then you're there. Oh, no, this is what I think about the scene in general. This is what I think about politics. And then some people are like, whoa, you know, and and that's been very skillful, I think, the way that you've done that. Um, And, you know, you think about, I mean, like Nicholas Payton kind of jumps to mind because he'll go in on social media and really, you know, what to some people would say is a little above his pay grade beyond just talking about the trumpet and talk about, wait, the things that the critics used to. And we think, man, that's so old school. But I think there's probably still a transition for people, you know, people being able to, you know, tolerance level for us to really speak intelligently about our music, but also control the destiny of the intellectual discourse or whatever. Well put. 
Oh, thank you. Because I just because all your other questions <laughs> you, you guys that, answered already. <laughs> I saw you reading that. Right so, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit. So the, this podcast is called the process. So I got to get a process of something in there. But I was thinking as I listened to you guys last night, um, you know, something that's kind of technical within the music. But I think everybody, you know, musicians and listeners can really appreciate. You guys are the are masters of playing in odd times. And making it feel like it's not odd. I mean, you guys do a lot of stuff, you know, nines, sevens, and and fives, and and um, I'm just wondering, is there a? I mean, I know a little bit about doing this because I I do it too, but I'd love to hear from from some guys that do it together. Did you guys develop that as a conscious thing on certain tunes, or as like a band philosophy, or was it kind of how you were hearing music, and then it sort of just started to happen? And um, then I have some follow-up questions to that. I would say, I guess I just have to speak for myself, but I'm probably speaking for Ethan Dave here too, that it, it, it stems more from just how we're hearing the music i think that if there's a if there's a focus that this band has it's on the song you know we're always we're always conscious of playing a song whether we're playing free improvisation or whether we're playing something that's very minimal um and so you know for us the odd times we don't really think about the time signature or anything it's just that's just how the song goes and i think when you approach it with from that perspective, it, it, it has a certain flow to it rather than like, okay, well, here's a bar of five, here's a bar of seven or whatever. Like, I honestly couldn't tell you what time signatures any of our songs are in just because it's like, well, the song just goes like this. So <laughs> he has that luxury. <laughs> <laughs> Bass players. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we there's times within the development of each piece where you got to deal with certain information and you got to think about what it is. So it's, you know, it's probably a combination of some sort of ethereal relationship to the song, but also like, well, to superimpose this with that, I've got to think about like that. But I think ultimately the musicality of the of the moment is the most important thing to us, not whether or not it's impressive or it's more of just a maybe an, a tool for tension or something that can be released at some point. But sometimes we play with these kind of amorphic shapes as well that we know the beginnings and endings of, and so it can appear as though there's some sort of, you know, um, exacting quotient. But but being able to be playing together so much, we can improvise within certain things. Sometimes there's very strict structures with all these things. Sometimes it's free from structure and sometimes there are these other forms of structure harmonic structure with rubato rhythms or whatever that you can kind of when you play together so much it can really become a clave of its own a, a rhythm of its own and i think that's one of the things we've been able to do is is when he says we don't talk about it much we don't we our secret if there is one is that we don't talk about much at all um musically or anything i mean ethan and i talk about like 60s muscle car movies and stuff and reading you know i mean we don't really we don't sit there and get in there we'll we'll nerd out every now and again on records we all love but for the most part the text that we make together is one where that's the song and let's learn how to play the song and 
it's not like, okay, it's 11 and, and it's whatever. It's more like you hear that and yep, I hear that. But, you know, of course we're dealing with that information technically as well. But I think that's one of the secrets to the whole thing is to have it be just, it's, it's got to feel good. Mm-hmm. It, there's got to be a purpose for all of this. And I think that's the thing we curate with each other the most is that, does this actually work? Can I say something here? Is this whether or not we're deconstructing some other person's composition or we're bringing in our own music? Everyone's got to have some sort of relationship to it. And if it means it's a technical relationship, why? Why is that there? And what can we do with it to make it feel good? So I mean, we, I think I speak for all of us. We really appreciate your, your comments about the tools we use and that, that, that it feels musical and it feels good because ultimately that's really our great statement in that front is no matter how complex it is, we want it, we want it to be a musical reason and, and not a reason of like macking out or some other lower vibrating transmission of like, yeah, it's, it's, it's for us, it's actually really much more the personalized touch of this music and creating tension and release and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely comes, it comes through, and, you know, if, if you know the kind of technical backstory on the time, you know, it's, it's really exciting because you can, you know, when I sit and listen to you guys, I can hear the collective commitment, whether you've talked about it or not. Or not. I know that doesn't matter. You, you're, you're talking about it musically as you play. I mean, you guys might hate each other, be one of those bands with like three separate tour buses or whatever. <laughs> no, it's no. all good, man. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but, um, no, but I mean, you, 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 the audience feels... Well, I think to the audience that's not a musician, it just feels like it's grooving and it's... I mean, they don't know about odd or not. They're, I mean, to them, there is no odd time if it's played. Odd time is somebody playing badly in four. You know, that's odd. You know, or an odd-looking dude playing in four. You know, you know one thing about... I think that is about... You know, might be related to what we do in the Bath Plus is... Asymmetrical, that sounds like bad like oh boy asymmetrical we're in trouble now but the truth of the matter is a certain amount of asymmetrical attributes is sort of what makes something become a hook you know and the like a zillion people in the 19th century wrote like european classical music but we know haydn and mozart and beethoven because if you compare everyone else who is writing that kind of music, their stuff is really square. But those are the guys who are like, oh, it's a little asymmetrical. And guess what? That also means it can hook in your mind. And so, like, prog rock is this thing that had this, these odd meter stuff, you know? But the best prog rock bands have these little pieces of, of tune in there that get embedded in your head, just like any other great hook. And I think it's actually the asymmetrical elements of any great melody or piece of musical information that that's the sort of thing that can reach in and be like, oh, that's cool. I, now I can't get it out of my head. You know, if, if, if music is totally square, rounded off, it's in four, all the phrase lengths are, four, are in four, it sort of becomes, there's, there's nothing really there that, to have that kind of relationship with a tune or a composition. Now, there's probably like one gazillion exceptions to what I just said, but I would say that in our, I think what part of what we do is that we, if we're doing odd times, we want to first at least present a hook. Like, oh yeah, that's this thing that sort of goes like this. 
maybe we can't sing it at first because it's a weird time, but at the same time, it has a little bit of this reach in and grab you in some kind of fun way. You know? Well, I think also just, you know, the, the odd times is like, you know, everybody plays in odd times. And like, like you said, it's not, there's nothing particularly interesting or even at a certain point, it's not that challenging for a competent musician to do that. Um, I think one of the things, perhaps, if we do have something in that realm, is is more about sort of the harmonic language that that we deal with, which is tends to be a lot more triadic in nature than than most uh, most jazz, and that's also a very intentional decision on our part. You know, we're into we we I think that we you know consciously try to exploit things like like voice leading, which, you know, in a, in a more, like not to say we don't have extended harmonies, but, you know, generally speaking, it veers toward, uh, you know, a little more exposed harmony where, you know, the, the seventh to the third really means something more, uh, a little more, um, you know, almost like classical harmony or something like that. And I think that combined with the the odd times and and the occasional abandonment of time is is a little more part of the full recipe of of that. So so like the harmony maybe being more something that the listener can hold on to a little bit easier if if, if you're doing is it is that kind of the way you're thinking at it? If something else rhythmically is 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 harder to hold on to? Well, of course they all work together, you know. But but I think that. You know, if we're just playing, you know, you, you can you can write the most complicated rhythms you want, and and you know, the harmonic language isn't you can't separate that from that too. So it's all part of like you know, sorry to say it, but the song again. Yeah, know. yeah. There's there's a purpose. Like like there's a like this this ha- like Dave said this happens for a reason. It's in seven, not because like well we should have a tune in seven. It's in seven because it had to be in seven. I mean, this is such a great point because I remember when I first moved to New York. That's when. In 91, this is when odd times really started taking off and people would play jazz standards in, in odd time. And I never liked it. I still don't like it. Now, I'm not saying Brad Meldow playing All the Things You Are in 7 isn't killing. It is. But at the same time, that's like you really got to do a bunch of steps in the equation to get to that. Just playing All the Things You Are in 7 just to like for variety is a mistake. It's actually really nerdy and bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just just do, play do the, the tunes, math live right. You know, remember, just... remember the clothes we used to wear back in the early 90s to the gigs too? It all it all fit together, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, right, right. That's cool. Did, okay. Didn't you have to play Solar at jam sessions in 7? Yeah. I five, hated that, eight, man. I hated yeah, doing yeah. playing. I mean, Especially five, Solar seven. for some reason was just like right. guys can we make some music here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a trend that kind of kind of went away. But I mean, there is. I I, I do think that. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you guys captured it perfectly. And I think that, you know the stuff that the audience feels and they don't know and they are not counting. I mean, I, I mean to me, the antithesis of a cool way to do odd times is when you see someone and they're going, "Oh yeah, is that nice?" You know, they're just like counting over and over again. You guys float in a way and interact in a way, and there's a fluidity there. And and then the groove. I mean, that's to, to me. I mean, all these other things are important, but but your guys' mastery of a collective groove and a commitment to that. I mean, that's 
what what really holds it together. Well, if we're seeing a show and we're seeing someone that, let's say we're talking about someone like Vijay Iyer, who who's really you know astounding at playing you know very odd rhythms and things like that, and I'm not sitting in the audience going trying to count along or thinking about the nuts and bolts of it. I want to hear the music and enjoy what this actual melodic, harmonic, whatever rhythmic statement is as a whole, like the energy, the visceral elements of everything. And we might know all the stuff, but I just feel that's just such a huge cutoff of what the essence of this music maybe should be and comes from in the history of jazz or whatever. It's, it's, it's social music. It's, 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 music to connect to your heart and really anything that gets in the way of that is the enemy as far as I'm concerned. Right. right. So you can make it as dense as you want and you can get into the academic nature of everything. But I mean, ultimately that to me is the weakest tool that, that, that just kills the essence of what it is, you know? And when you sense that that's the strongest tool in your toolbox, I think you need to think we are some form of antithesis, hopefully, to that with the amount of heart that goes into it and the amount of commitment, emotional commitment to the music. Whether or not there's an academic statement in there, that's fine. That's one of our tools, but that's not, that's ultimately at the end of the day, I would much prefer affecting anyone on any level that they can take it at equally. And I think that that's kind of where we come from as a band. And that's, that's that outreach energy as well. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I would say that you, you guys have far too many people at your shows, like, bouncing their heads and tapping their feet, considering the actual compl- underlying complexity of the grooves and the times that you're playing. So, to me, that's, that's, that's where the success really comes in. You know? Right. And to clarify, I don't mean that Vijay is someone that you don't get that from. No, no, you no, do, because he's got a great group sound yeah. and concept as well. So I'm just saying my own experience with dance music, it's an audience member. That's what I mean. Yeah. No, me too. And, I mean, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I always... You know, if I go see a show and people are coming, well, what did you think? Or, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at, like, how little I'm thinking as a somewhat skilled musician and more is just like, does this sound, man, what are they wearing? Does this, I'm a very surface level. Like, am I tapping my foot and it was, was there something, uh, you know, melodic that I remembered at the end of the night? I mean, you do those, you're good. And then anything <laughs> else, you know, I, I got to put my thinking cap on a little uh-huh. bit. <laughs> I was just at the... Uh, a great painting uh, exhibition in New York at, at the Guggenheim um, of Agnes Martin, who's a, one of the, you know, is having a moment now, but she was one of the great um, um, innovators of uh, kind of like slightly post-abstract expressionist into the minimalist movement of painting. She really invented a certain thing that's finally being realized that she is. And she uh, had incredible quotes. You know, she, was, she was very solitary, lived alone for many years, didn't speak for many years. She was one of these very Zen, the real deal, like saying that art only exists as a high vibration and all these other things. And she said, there's this quote just saying, the minute that your academic relationship to something is your relationship, as far as creativity and art, she literally just said, it's over at that point. The power of what it can do is gone. And it, then it just hums around here. It doesn't hum up here. And at ran. I was like, wow. I mean, I almost cried reading that, seeing that you could sit there and break down the nuts and bolts of everything she was doing, but to have someone say it just like that and have, a, have someone who have lived it that way, where they, you know, she said, you know, do, do, you, you know, do you ever explore some of the darker themes you know, that the abstract expressionists, and she said, 
all you need to do is live through tragedy once to never want to go back. And no, my stuff is about love. My stuff is about beauty. My stuff is to say hi, high vibrations. And I was just like, man, you know, it's so, that's such a perfect way to think about this stuff. It's just like, it has to exist to touch someone's heart or it means nothing. wanted to touch real quick do i have two minutes to do this okay because i you brought something up in terms of we're talking about harmony and then you know classical music and stuff your uh your guys take on the ride of spring you know project you did a few years ago um you know just an amazing work and i'm just wondering are you guys still playing it first of all and are you going to be doing it some more or was that like a a certain period and it's done uh, well, we, we did play it uh, over the course of the last couple of years quite a bit. Um, it is a fairly unique project, and it involves video and lighting and stuff. So we, we don't regularly do it. And gosh, I don't even know if we have it on the books at this point. As, <laughs> the further we get from it, the scarier it gets, because there's a lot of stuff that you know is just memorized. And you know it's fairly difficult piece of music to play. Do you guys do it totally for memory? No, well, oh, not like, totally, <laughs> but, you know, like, we all have, we don't have, like, proper parts, you know. Right. Dave, Dave does it from memory, but, you know, like, my... He's a drummer. Yeah. Because he doesn't, whatever he <laughs> plays, it doesn't matter. The, he's the drummer on the right of spring. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's a little bit of innovating going on. Right, right. right. Not, not the whole section, not the whole percussion Not section. just one <laughs> section either, jamming. The right of spring, Peter. Got it. Yeah. Well, and I was, I would just say that, you know, for folks listening that, that are not familiar with this project, you know, rush out and check this out. It's a very exciting thing. And, and I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that in the wrong hands could be a disaster, you know, jazz trio or tree, you know, jazz group doing the right of spring. But I think, you know, to your point, Ethan, about some of the, um, you know, asymmetrical, your concept on yeah. asymmetrical, that's what example. got me thinking of that. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it seems like you really, you guys picked up on that, you know, if, if subconsciously, if consciously, whatever, but you really made that connection there with your concepts. I think we all had the feeling when we worked on it, I was like, well, this sounds like us already. I mean, the Rite of Spring was so influential, it went into all the music that we all loved in that in the 20th century sphere, you know. So it, it feels 
very natural for us in the general language. Actually getting all the notes right in order over the 40 minutes, that is a little bit more heavy lifting than it makes sense to do every day. So, But it's true that that is, I was going to say when you were talking about the hooks and the, of, you know, when Ethan was bringing the hooks, it's like, well, I mean, there it is, like Stravinsky and the use of these melodic hooks within this very odd context. I mean, that's almost like the foundation of folk music turned into something new right? and something very complex. And yeah. some, but at the same time, just like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. And then it goes here and that sounds good. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, I guess you know, to me, you know, we we never talked about this, but but the way it felt, you know, kind of knowing the piece and then knowing your group was that the heavy lifting on in terms of interpretation and filling filling in the blanks came to you, Dave. Like the kind of thing if we were sitting around geeking out on that piece, and it's like, man, it sounds like a funk funk groove that he goes, but like you actually did it and like put that in and like realized the dreams that we had of of listening to it and kind of heard the connections of things to come, you know. And um, it's just a super, super cool thing, especially if you kind of know both worlds. And, yeah. and um, you know, congrats for making those connections. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you guys so much. Um, there's like literally a card and a half that I didn't get to because I, I missed stuff. So if you guys would like to do this again sometime, we can like say that it's going to be part two. Don't worry, we're just going to say that. But I would actually really love to sure. do it. Okay, great. So if that works out, because there's it's so much to there. Talk to you. Thanks yeah. for your questions, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. So um, thank you guys, everybody, for being here for the process. Give it up for the Bad Plus. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Process. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a rating or review for us. For more information, go to openstudionetwork.com, and we'll see you next time at The Process. The Process.